Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben show. As I speak, it's Friday, March 24th, 2023. Uh, and uh, I'm going to, uh, as I always do with a uh, interview, a uh, bonus interview that drops on the weekend. I always like to start off with what's in uh, the news of the day. Uh, and this is a little piece of news that uh, was in my Chicago Sun-Times, Home Delivered. Uh, and I've already talked about it at length at a previous show, and I just can't stop talking about it. Pretty much everybody I've talked to on the phone today, I ask them, have you read this story in the Sun-Times? And I try to stay as dispassionate as I can about this, people. The last time I talked about it in the air in a show that uh, dropped on a Friday, uh, I was ra- <laughs> railing. I was like, red in the face. I couldn't believe it. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm calming down now. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I've said this on the air. I'm starting to think, that, you know, dispassion and anal- analysis is what the people of Chicago want. You know, ranting and railing at the people of the city of Chicago <laughs> has not worked. So I'm like, this advanced age of mine, I've decided to use a new approach. It's not really working out, folks. I must tell you that. Because, like, I start talking about it and then I just start building up. And, uh-oh, here he goes. Look out. But this 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 article, this worldview in the Chicago Sun Times was so astounding, and it, it just got me thinking. Like, how did anybody at the Chicago Sun Times think that this was like a valid point of view? You know, they got editors there, and the publisher there, and just the reporters there, and you know, I'm like, sometimes I think I'm alone in the city of Chicago. Sometimes, I mean, part of it is that I I I, I do my show from an attic. I'm all alone in the attic, uh, and, you know, I have my friends that I see, uh, you know, my bowling buddies, my wife, and uh, but maybe I don't interact with people in Chicago enough. Maybe I'm isolated and cut off from my fellow Chicagoans so that I'm the one who's weird. Like, I'm the one who's 
an oddball. And everybody else agrees with the following, which has been put in the Chicago Sun-Times, one of the two leading downtown dailies. And I know times have changed. I think that the only people who read uh, daily newspapers like the Sun-Times and Tribune anymore are baby boomers. I understand that. But still, this is a quote from Tom Tunney, who is the alderman of the 44th Ward, one of the most powerful aldermen in the city council, the head of the zoning committee. I already talked about it at length before, but I just, I need to know whether I am alone in Chicago and in thinking that this is one of the most whacked out things that could possibly stated, be stated by a public official in a democratic city. So this is not like Ron DeSantis, Florida. This is not Gregory Abbott's Texas. This is not like Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is from Chicago, a city that voted over 80% against Donald Trump. Tom Tunney was the alderman from the Lake from Lakeview, which is uh, on the north side of Chicago. And uh, he was an ally of Lori Lightfoot. Then he turned against Al- Lori Lightfoot. Now he loves Paul Vallis and has endorsed Paul Vallis and runs around doing commercials for Paul Vallis. I think he has a Paul Vallis T-shirt that he likes to wear. I do not know that, but <laughs> my distinguished guest had a funny face. This is the quote from uh, Tom Tunney. Here we go. Why the issue, the question was apparently uh, why did the lakefront turn against Lori Lightfoot? <clears throat> Here we go. Quote: Four years ago, five years ago, the lakefront was where Lori Lightfoot got her start, and I counseled her that the lakefront is important for her career and downtown is important. And I think her overemphasis, while audible, on South and West Side neglected downtown excuse me, on South and West, neglected downtown and neglected the North side. She was too focused on South and West and basically told downtown and the North side, quote, fend for yourself, whether it was police, whether it was economic development plans. It was only really at the tail end of her career that she had an idea about remaking LaSalle Street. You can prioritize South and West and underdeveloped neighborhoods, but you can't dismiss the economic engine for the city that actually pays for many of these programs. That is an astounding worldview, in my humble opinion, to think that the wealthiest, the wealthiest neighborhoods of Chicago that are on the north side and in the loop and in the surrounding area, just think of like a circle around the downtown, the wealthiest areas of Chicago have been neglected have been neglected by anybody uh, and that the beneficiaries of that neglect are the poorest neighborhoods in Chicago and that somehow or other people in Lakeview or Lincoln Park, which are astounding wealthy communities, ladies and gentlemen, are being deprived because so much public dollars is being expended on the poorest neighborhoods. It's turning like Northsiders into victims. And who is victimizing them? The South and the West Side. And we all know what that means. Tom Tunney is essentially saying it's those black neighborhoods that are getting all the resources. And it's our poor little rich neighborhoods 
that are getting neglected. Now, folks, come on. I can't be the only person astounded by this. I truly cannot be the only person astounded by this. This notion that the poor are rich and the rich are poor is so <laughs> ludicrous. Just drive through the north side. Just take a little trip through Lakeview. You can stop and have a cinnamon roll at Tommy Tony's restaurant if you want. Tell them I sent you. They'll throw it. No, better not. They'll probably throw you out. Drive through the north side and then go drive through Austin or Roseland or any neighborhood on the south or west sides. And you tell me. Which part of the city is neglected? All right, without further ado, I'm going to stop for the moment because remember I said I was going to be dispassionate? Yeah, I feel, I feel the blood pressure rising, the red coming into my face. I'm going to calm down and ask my distinguished guest to introduce herself. And we're going to have a great conversation. Very dispassionate, very analytical, and very smart. So distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Hello, Ben. This is Denali Dasgupta. Um... I don't know, uh, former aldermanic challenger from the 39th Ward, budget raccoon, electoral Johnny Knoxville, a uh, person who is here to talk to you about public finance narratives. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and she goes, wait, why are you talking about this? And I said, oh, this is what I do when I'm not running for office. And she goes, you know, you say that about a lot of things. No one is really sure quite what it is that you do. Um, so I'm super excited that you wanted to talk not just about municipal public finance, but about narrative building in municipal public finance. I'm going to get, uh, historical, geographical and relevant, right? Yes. We're going to get relevant too. Um, yes, we're going to get relevant. And Denali was a guest on my show about, I don't know, six weeks ago, something like that, when she was very much a candidate in the 39th ward. I'd never met Denali before. She had never met me. Uh, and we had a delightful conversation. And I thought to myself, those folks in the 39th Ward are really lucky that they have someone so intelligent uh, and so thoughtful running um, for aldermen or alderwoman uh, in their ward. Very lucky people. And so they, once again, with our theme that I'm completely out of it, uh, they turned right around and defeated Denali. Uh, and uh, I, I'm sure uh, you've recuperated uh from whatever uh, pangs of disappointment that you had maybe not um but i don't know 39th ward <laughs> heck of a job there's what well I no so look so elston avenue behind my house between north mayfair and forest glen is what i call the vallis johnson line and you can see where turnout the regularity of showing up of the electorate, the different, I mean, the 39th Ward is incredibly diverse. We talked about that before. Um, but you can see like what people want, how they want it, and the extent to which they come to elections and government to ask for it in a reliable way, really, really show up in a place like the 39th Ward. Um, so I think we did great. You know, like I, you know, I conceded very early. Uh, Sam Nugent hustled me off the phone and I was like, if she had stayed on the phone for like two more minutes, I would have straight up asked her for a job. But, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of people who who think that I'd be great working in your office. What do you say? Um, but, you know, my concession speech started with me saying, like, you know, and this is actually true. Like, I, I know that like a lot of people want to manage their disappointment, but like, I was really sad about the loss, but I'm so proud of what we did that, you know, I, I was sad for a couple of minutes. And then the biggest thing for me is like, I'm 40, I have three kids and I don't have a job. So my concession speech was basically me saying, you know, I'd love to get back and I'd love to get in a time machine, go see myself when I was 16 and be like, you're going to be 40, you have three kids, you're going to be unemployed, 
be drinking a beer and crying in the parking lot of a laundromat. And your Indian mother is going to be like more proud of you than she's ever been in your life. And then just let myself sit and wonder for like the rest of my life. But it was, I mean, it was incredible. I sent out a thank you note to folks today and I was just thinking, you know, it's not a beginning, it's not an end. Um, you know, quoted James Baldwin saying like, when we refuse to abdicate responsibility, we begin again. And I think this is a great beginning. I want us to keep talking and thinking and doing the things that we did and not walk away. Um, because this is just, history is long. We've been, we begin again. Do you know where Baldwin said that? Just curious. Um, I, I think it was a, it was a lecture. It was a lecture. We begin again. It was a lecture. I have lots of Baldwin quotes everywhere. The one that I always use is, it's funny, but it's terribly sad. You, know, you used to be able to turn your TV on and just like see James Baldwin on network, te- network television. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's true. The sun- Those Sunday were good days. morning, uh, yeah, you would be on talk shows. Um, boy, that's a whole other the devolution of talk shows. Anyway, uh, a Sunday talk shows. Let's let's put that aside. Um, let's keep it classy like us. Yes, let's <laughs> <laughs> let's keep it classy like us. Um, so. We're going to be talking about narratives uh, that uh, people put forth, uh, a lot of folks buy into. Uh, And I just need to get, I would love to hear your thoughts about the narrative that uh, Tom Tunney put forth, because my sense is that it's probably a lot more prevalent um, than I ever realized. I, I, I can't recall seeing it so boldly stated uh, in a downtown newspaper, uh, like it was in today's Sun Times, just put out there uh, that the rich and the well-to-do are somehow other than the neglected, uh, and that the poor um, get all the goodies, which like completely contradicts is contradicted by the notion of rich having a lot and poor not having a lot. So, I just on the face of it, it is. Trumpian in its reversal of everything. Let's get in the time machine and go to the late 60s and the early 70s, right? And as big cities were having their financial crises, there was this narrative of makers and takers. And even when you look back, so, right, this is now that I'm not running anymore, Ben, I told you that I could tell people I'm actually from New York. Um, And I spent a lot of time studying the New York City municipal public finance crisis, the, the fiscal crisis of 76 and all of the other things around it. And the narratives that you tend to read are, are a couple of things. One is we were too generous with benefits. We made college free. We gave everyone pensions. We did whatever. And then the city's composition somehow shifted from makers to takers. And they talked about that in very racialized terms. And they talked about public housing. They talked about public education. And they talked about this idea of throwing good money after bad. And they talked about white flight and suburbanization. But there was this underlying idea that we were not taking in as much as we were giving out. And the reason for that is we were just giving out more to people who were not turning around and then giving more in. And there was a fantastic book that came out a couple years ago called Fear City that talks about, you know, recasting that narrative. And what actually happened is that all of those people in the government who were making those decisions and crafting those narratives were sitting down with, with bankers and Wall Street people. It was actually exactly the same as today. And there's this idea, there's this moral injury that how is our good money, which is built on top of the infrastructure of the city, right? Like it's built on top of that public investment. How is our good money uh, not going to more stuff for us? There's real, real um, 
frustration about that. And I think it's part and parcel of the public safety narrative, which is also we stay safe by building walls around ourselves. So that's why Tom Tunney doesn't think that people on the south and west side of Chicago are Chicagoans. When he's talking about the Chicago budget and where the Chicago mayor goes. I think that's a really tough and interesting thing, but it is not new. Uh, you're you're right. It's not new. I just have never seen it uh, so boldly expressed by a public official in the city of Chicago uh, before. I just I, I understand it's part of the whisper. Um, I understand you'll see it on responses. Like if I drop this interview uh, on Twitter, for instance, and people listen to it, and then the Twitter responses, I understand, you know, like, like who knows if they're real, even human beings or just made up, they're bots or whatever. But uh, this is a public official in the city of Chicago uh, saying, and I just want to point out before we take the deep dive, um, the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, had an initiative called South uh, and West. And it's really, as Gregory Pratt pointed out in the Tribune, just a packaging of all this, the basic city governmental spending on the north and the, excuse me, uh, on the south and west side, bundled together to make it look like it was a major initiative. So she was making the attempt to seem like she was trying to reverse uh, the um, the the spending decisions that have, have hurt these neighborhoods down through the years. But in reality, it was more or less a marketing scheme. And so to turn a marketing scheme into like it is the economic program of the city of Chicago, overlooking the fact that the vast majority of dollars, public dollars that the city has, are not spent in poor neighborhoods, but they're spent in well-to-do neighborhoods through our TIF program, um, is breathtaking in just how astoundingly wrong it is. Uh, And yet, to your point, it may have a deeper resonance uh, with uh, voters in the city of Chicago, residents in the city of Chicago, that somehow or other, they are the makers and those other people unnamed people, but we know who they are, are the takers. And if there's more of us and less of them, our city would be a better place. Yes. But I think so. so there's two things that happen. One is you're right. People have always said this, but I think the window underneath it, and this is kind of where we get to the public finance piece, has shifted where in 1990, when, you know, Daly came in and and passed his budget and, and Dallas became budget director shortly thereafter, there was like pushback on some of these things that are now totally normalized. And so between 1990 and now, the way that people understand what the function of government and government spending is has changed. And so you take that and you put that whisper network over it, people now feel emboldened to say those things out loud because they say, oh, well, this is what good government looks like. This is what efficient government looks like. And that is a long arc from daily to Emmanuel to Lightfoot. Um, where you're right, like there were many things that Lightfoot did that were just marketing packaging of existing um, city services and agency services. Um, but even that was sort of like, you know, worrisome to folks like Tom Tunney. The story it makes me think of is like I came up doing a bunch of child development research and when they rolled Head Start out in the 70s, which has been like one of the most successful federal programs and early childhood investments of all time in this country. Middle class people who were not eligible for it were worried. They were like, you're going to give kids a head start on my kid. And there's something that just kind of makes me want to like crawl under my desk and put my head on the floor because I just like, like you were saying, you're in your attic. I'm in my basement. I don't get it. 
I don't get it. I used to be a foster parent. Like, I don't get why people think that doing decent things and building like a basic fundamental level, high quality public services for everybody is somehow going to like not get their kid into Yale. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, the programs that um, are budgets that Mayor Daley passed in uh, the early 90s uh, and came to uh, be seen as efficient ways of operating good government. Uh, get a, please be a little more specific about that. Um, All right. Okay. Yeah. So um, let me... Let's talk about the 1990 budget. And because I was so excited to see you, I actually did some research. And so I'm going to read you something from the Trib on November 15, 1990. It says, Mayor Richard Daley handily won city council approval of his record $3.179 billion budget for 1991. The budget was a decisive 38 to 9. Um, and this is really interesting. Uh, a centerpiece of Daly's plan to privatize many city services by forming, farming them to outside firms on a contractual basis was approved by a 28 to 19 vote. So let's sit in this budget for a second, which is sort of like, you know, um, like Paul Vallis Muppet Babies, right? And let's like go back to his origin story. There were a couple things that happened. One is he slashed the property tax levy by about $25 million. So this idea for the makers, we are going to kind of ease up on you. Spending went up about $50 million. This is a really big budget. And one of the things that he did was he wanted to put 800 new cops on the street, which I, I think is really an interesting echo of how we talk about what we want to spend money on and what property taxes actually go to when you think about the, the Corporation Council budget. He extended the hiring freeze, which again starts this idea of, of the public sector is inefficient. Let's find other ways, uh, cheaper employees whose pensions and benefits we don't have to pay. Let's try to play this, this private sector type finance. And then the last thing was, you know, he started privatizing things. He privatized the tow fleet. And from there, you see this really, really long arc starting from city services to city assets, right? Leasing of public infrastructure, the famous parking meter deal, all of this stuff, all the way to social services, right? Which is where we are now. And with each of these successive privatizations, we have come to think of the role of government as being narrower and narrower and focused differently and differently. And I think it's really funny. Like I just pulled this budget so I would have something to talk to you about because like in 1990, I wasn't thinking a lot about Chicago. But for me to look at it and really see the seeds of what we're talking about today was just wild to me. It's right there. It's right there in black and white. It's right there in the in the 1990 November 15th trip. Well, let's just think about the inconsistencies in this budget. By the way, as ancient as I am, I cannot recall the 1990 uh, budget battle. Uh, I was alive and, and reporting on Chicago, uh, but um, I don't remember it, the specifics of it. But just hearing your recount brings back certain themes. So let's start with this. Uh, there's a hiring freeze and yet he's adding 800 police. So right there and then there's an inconsistency. That is, right, right. you cannot have a hiring freeze if you're adding 800 police. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, that is a mixed message that is sent out as though it's a united message. And whenever I talk about how the media was in Daly's pockets back in the 1990s, I will, we could say, there's exhibit A. So well, on one hand, came to the council. So in this article, she came down to the council and gave a, a press conference in the hallway and said, this is just an attempt to give away the government and set up a new patronage army. Jane Byrne so, said that. Yeah. Yeah. In, in the hallway. Um, and so back then, like you, like people, you know, regular folks like us, uh, to the extent that we're regular folks, um, 
believed that this was new and different and strange. And I think you go around today and people think that all this is, this is the baseline. The baseline is a private sector that outsources a lot. The baseline is, I mean, the idea of an efficient public sector is really a 1990s concept, right? That is not the primary goal of the public sector. What should be the the primary goal of the public sector? So from public administration theory, the idea of maximizing public good. Now, that can look like a lot of other things. But I mean, what I think of it as and what I campaigned on was the idea of like, we need to build a floor, a platform below no one, which we, we agree nobody can fall. And we can do that better collectively through the public sector. Well, uh, and so I would think that many Chicagoans would think that they want policing. Okay, this this is before the concept of defund the police uh, had ever been born, 1990. Um, although Chicago was struggling with issues of police brutality way before 1990. Um, but so most Chicagoans, I think, uh, would have probably said, yes, I want more police officers. But it's interesting. He's slashing property taxes, freezing other aspects of government and hiring 800 more police officers. Well, sooner or later, if you hire 800 more police officers, uh, you're going to be having to pay a pension obligation to those police officers, which is- And you know where he wanted to send them though. So this is this is where it connects to the Vallis thing. Where does Paul Vallis want to send all the police officers he's hiring? Where does he want to send the police Where does he officer? want to send the police officers? Have you heard him talk about this? Oh yeah, he's going to, well, wait, time out. Police officers that he's, re, re, in general, or police officers that he's bringing back to the city? So the people that he wants to bring back, what he wants to show people, be cops. He wants them to put them uh, I, in, uh, well, throughout the city. Uh, yeah. I say he wants everywhere. Again. He wants visible yeah. police presence, which is just a, a large scale thing. And that was also part of, again, right, bringing in more police officers back then, right? You're thinking about the early 90s. You're thinking about devastation of the 1980s. You're starting to see all kinds of things happening um, during, during the 90s. And um, the things that are being offered as comfort for people, as a sense of control, and as a sense of, hey, look at us, we're doing a good job, because there's something about this budget, and there's something about the way that folks like this communicate. That's like, look at what a good job we're doing. They're playing to the Tom Tunnies of the world. We are common sense, reasonable people. We have solutions, we have policies, we have, you know, the Rube Goldberg machine that says, if we put this in, that's going to come out. And I think it all falls apart on the ground. Because what I think about this as is like, if only you would just policy, that falls apart at the ground. I have three kids. My kids are 17, five, and two, right? At some point, someone is going to have to change the way things work. And it's not going to happen. But that promise is so soothing. And like you said, drive through the north side. If it doesn't work, are people going to notice? The other point in that budget, and I'd love to get your added uh, response to this, uh, he's privatizing city services, but hiring more police officers. So there's a notion put forth that we're better off with private sector running things like human services. Uh, but well, we he started won- with assets, but he event. Yeah, I mean, there there were some privatized human services, and there was like the addiction treatment services that the city used to run closed down. Which again, you feel like that's history echoing with the mental health clinics. But yeah, so the private sector will do a better job, and but that's not because the, the police public department. Sector- not with the police department. Yes. No, we, we don't privatize security. So explain that. Explain that distinction. How is that efficient government? Why is it more efficient to uh, have a public police department uh, and uh, private human service uh, operations? 
So last time I was here, we talked about the difference between public safety and policing and that policing is largely law enforcement. And if you think about whose property, whose interests, and, you know, whose existing status and and structural relationships the laws protect, it makes a lot of sense that law enforcement is something that we double down on when we want to keep the world the way that it is, right? We're protecting that vision of the world, and that's really appealing to a lot of people. So we want that, we want those public employees It's it's a worthwhile public expenditure. And I'll say, like, I was standing in, I went to early voting almost every day, and I would talk to people as they were coming to vote. And I finally pulled up a budget infographic, and I said, like, I don't know if you know how the budget is built. I don't even know if you know that it's more than one budget. But they'll say things like, okay, like, I understand we need more of this, we need more of that, but we can't cut police, and also I want property taxes cut. And I said, like, this is where, and, and granted, city budgets exist so we can move the money around everywhere, but there is a direct relationship between spending on police and property taxes. Like, this is your skin in the game. This money comes municipally. Streets and sand and police are paid for by you. Lots of human services are paid by federal money, state money, whatever you want to call it, income taxes that are rolled up and then sprinkled back down. But I find it really interesting, and I want people, and did make people sit with the idea that the dollars you're pulling out of your house are for policing. How do you feel like that's working out for you? Do you want more, less, the same, different? And we don't have that conversation because we don't. It's much easier to say, like, I'm going to do a tangible thing. You're going to see more cops. It's going to be great. Please elect me. All right. So let's go back to the narrative that was established in 1990 and is the prevailing narrative today. And I'm going to give you a concrete example of what I'm getting at. All right. So that you were specifically talking about privatizing city services by taking some employees and turning uh, uh, and turning their um, uh, their responsibilities over to private services uh, and while hiring more police officers. So follow me on this. Uh, and this relates to Paul Vallis because uh, he is being a champion of this, the, the notion of choice uh, when it comes to education. Now, follow me on what I'm about to say. So for the last 20 years or so. There's been a theme put forth by Paul Vallis, Arnie Duncan, uh, and uh, that's other, and pretty much the entire Republican Party, that education, public education in cities like Chicago, uh, is has failed. Okay, it has failed. I hate this, by the way. This makes me crazy. Okay, but I'm just I'm articulating <laughs> your worldview. Okay, it has failed. As a response, the solution is to have competition, and the competition will be privately run schools that get public money. And that's how we improve our schools, okay? That's their attitude about schools, and uh, that's they, the direction they've gone into. And Paul Vallis has promised that he will go take it even further should he be elected mayor of the city of Chicago. Now, let's go look, take a look at policing. I think you could absolutely say that if you consider the crime rate in Chicago, that policing in Chicago has failed. I could say you can make an argument that the policing in Chicago, if you take a look at the crime rate, has failed as bad as the public schools have failed. And yet I know no one, absolutely no one, who has offered the notion that the way to deal with this is to have competition. So what we should do is have private security firms compete with the Chicago Police Department for the right to patrol the streets of the 39th Ward. 
or oh, I, I am. I imagine that is right around the corner. And like, but we no, we got a lot of public employees here. But like, there there are places like wasn't Bucktown considering getting some private security? There are places in Lake Lakeview. People have considered it. They have considered paying more money out of their pockets for uh, private security. You're absolutely correct. But no one has proposed taking money from the police department as it now exists and giving that money to the Denali Police Academy Service, Inc., so that Denali's employees will be substituting Chicago police officers. That's what we've done with schools. The narrative is that to have an efficient school system, you have to set up private competitors and give those public dollars to private competitors, and that will take money away from inadequate public educators, put it into adequate private educators, that competition itself will force the public education to do a better job. I'm not making this up. This is what Ballas says. Well, this, this is, is what Arnie Duncan they think about fa- They call failing schools, but they don't realize that public education is about maintaining a school system. Meanwhile, when they think about policing, they talk about policing as a citywide system, even though they think about sort of the impact of it and the way you engage with it neighborhood to neighborhood. But I think that there are, it is really weird that there's a vested interest that folks in the North side have on how we police the South side. But folks on the North side are ready to kind of like cut bait on schools on the South side. I say this in like gross generalities, but I think that that's the difference between thinking about things as like, this is mine, this is individual, this is regionalized versus we are funding a system. And it's really interesting to see that people do to some degree need and want to see policing as a comprehensive system. I mean, one of the first things that David Brown did that made me crazy is I think it was like his first year, the weekend before the 4th of July, they were just going to go through the parks and scoop kids up because uh, they they didn't want they didn't want the murder rate to go up. And they were like, there's a lot of young kids with guns. We're just going to like preemptively scoop people. Um, and I said it like it was really normal. And I, I showed the article to my husband and I was just kind of like, this is the, the superintendent of police saying they're just going to drive around abducting children, right? Okay, good, good. I just want to make sure I saw that. But for people do feel like they have a vested interest in how other communities are policed because they have a vested interest in how other communities are controlled. Whereas they don't really have that same vested interest in how other communities are educated. And again, like I think the like a public school system is a phenomenal thing. You're able to do things at scale uh, that you're not able to do. But people have this idea that when it comes to their children's education or their neighborhood school or their property values, that they want to kind of hold it close. Um, and the thing that I had said to you about the how the Emanuel administration continued where the Daly administration went is they had this idea that if we pump a lot of support and interest into our city's high performers, whether that's downtown, whether that's all of these other little like TIF districts, neighborhoods, the, the best schools, the best whatever, like we are going to make this a world-class city and generate a lot of revenue. And then on the back end, we'll support these other people in kind of a charitable model. That's not the way the public sector works. And it's really hard to hold those two things as your top priority at the same time. But people were sort of lulled into thinking this is an efficient way to be. And that's why you can see how a Tom Tunney would say like, hey, like, we're your partners on this city, private sector, business community. We're your partners. We're the makers. We want a seat at the table. And we will figure out how much and how and when to give to the takers because this is really our partnership. And that has happened for a really long time in cities. I mean, um, we go back to the 1970s in in New York, it was the Rand Corporation that told uh, the city of New York's fire department to sort of like slowly pull back fire service from places in the city. 
And there are places that they felt like were not as densely populated, were more subject to fires. It's a lot of how you feel when you go to places on, say, like the far south side. Um, there is this divestment idea that it is no longer efficient. When you look at the way that some of these school privatizer folks talk about um, small high schools, they talk about like Manly and Hirsch. They're like, oh, it's more expensive to maintain the building. How can we possibly justify fixing the roof? The school has to go. And I hear that day in and day out from people in the educational organizing space, like even people who think that they're rationalized. They're like, you you talk about a building versus kids, like a house is not a home. What do you mean? What are you trying to tell me? about what you think it's worth to spend on certain people and who gets to decide. Well, uh, what are you trying to tell me? I think there's uh, uh, a message embedded in what Tom Tunney said that is very much part of the city's like unspoken, uh, unspoken assumptions. Uh, and so to substantiate this, I'll talk about a dinner that Karen Lewis had, former CTU president Karen Lewis had with Rahm Emanuel, newly elected Rahm Emanuel in 2011, right after he won the election to become mayor. He was mayor-elect. And he sat her down. Uh, and it's undisputed that they had the dinner. Like, what was said at that dinner uh, is a he said, she said thing. But I kind of believe Karen Lewis on this one. Uh, <laughs> I, I would tend what, to. <laughs> I mean, I just like, ah, Karen versus Rahm, mm, telling the yeah. truth. Mm. Rom is in. I never looked at that Laquan McDonald video until the public did. Mm. Anyway, mm. Uh, so uh, uh, Karen Lewis says that Rom sat her down and he told her this is how it's going to be. Uh, and uh, you're going to, we're going to privatize the public schools. Uh, you're you're going to be f- fewer unionized schools. You're going to lose members, but this is the way it's going to be. And you have to sell this to your rank and file. They're going to have to shut up and take it. Uh, and then Karen Lewis responded something along the lines of paraphrasing from what she has said uh, that you're talking about just having babysitting services essentially for public school kids uh, as opposed to like real edu- real schools. And, and he said something along the line, well, that's fine because 25% of the school, the kids in Chicago public schools won't amount to anything anyway. So it's not worth spending money on them. That's what she says that he said. He later denied that he said it. I think I speak for all of Chicago, uh, except for maybe Tom Tunney, when I say no one believes Rom and everyone believes Karen. Um, but it's the same. But I've heard it. I've heard different versions of this. So before I, I went out in business on my own, I like you can Google it. I worked for a Rom Manual created sort of like youth services, let's do nice things for the young people um, organization. And I got to sit with lots of really wealthy people who had all these great ideas that they wanted to implement in the school system and just sort of like, we're going to talk about kids who are out of work and out of school. And like, we dove into the census data and we found that a lot of these kids are seasonally employed, are part-time employed. There's not good jobs for them. Um, You know, uh, option schools, kids going to these other schools sort of peaked in 2017. And so for some of these schools, right, Emmanuel closed a bunch of schools. And then even of the schools that were left, um, I mean, well, like the the longitudinal story I tell is this, is that if you go um, from the destruction of public housing, right, mid 90s, you can follow the path of investment away from this current generation of kids, you can call them the Laquan McDonald generation. Um, 
they all sort of scattered from public housing where there was lots of services and we couldn't find them with early childhood services. And then we closed a lot of their elementary schools. And then, um, you know, we doubled down on policing strategies and then the pandemic hit and then this happened and then that happened and then that happened. And we think about these things as happening in discrete points in time, but like kids grow up. All of these things happen to a single generation of kids which is utterly, totally wild. And so when you tell me that story, I can think about exactly who, from either a demographic perspective or even young people that I know, Rahm Emanuel is talking about. And none of these things that happened were accidents. And so it's really wild to hear people say, well, like, oh, just objectively looking at this, this is what we see. I mean, people come to me all the time, like, this is what the data show. And I'm like, well, this is an observation that you've made, but you haven't given me a good reason about why this has happened or how. Yeah, and uh, I think that it's a similar theme embedded in what uh, Tom Tunney's saying as well. Uh, you know uh, that it's not even worth spending money there, uh, and we're we're the ones who make the money, uh, and so that's where the money should be spent. We've got to draw down the money, and people will leave, or people will struggle, or people will survive, um, and it's. Um, it's really bad. Like, that's not what government is supposed to do, right? Government is not supposed to say, like, I'm sorry, uh, you've you've uh, hit your cap. We're not going to spend it anymore, right? Like, but somehow, right? And you got to think about this from the 90s on, right? Before 1990, nobody ever thought about the idea that they would be um, paying for their own retirement with a privatized retirement investment account. I think about this all the time, like IRAs and things like that, 401ks, right? Like, we were sold all of these things. And like, Every one of these things that happens normalizes our sense of what we should be doing for ourselves versus what other people should be doing for us or what we should be doing together for each other. And that's what I'm really worried about. I'm really worried about the fact that, like, you know, for, for some of us who have, have stayed where we are politically, that we've now become extreme lefties. And the center kind of continues to move with this idea of like, oh, well, I guess this is what government does. You fast forward to 2011 when Daly leaves, there's a massive structural deficit. Our pensions are underfunded. Uh, there's a downgrade in the bond rating. All of these happen. And you know what that feeds into? That feeds into that narrative of government doesn't work. See, we tried the public sector and it didn't work. And it just keeps rolling that way. And we, we have this preference for like the private sector over the public sector, and they are fundamentally different things that do different things, and they support each other, but they have to operate counter-cyclically. And we always say in private-public par public -private partnerships that we're doing it because the private sector knows something or can do something that the, the public sector can't. And that's, I, I don't believe that. I, I Listen, anybody follows what just went down with the Silicon Bank? Oh, uh, Yeah. With it and still believes that the private sector knows and we should follow is seriously diluted. Uh, by the way, everything uh, that was really well done. Uh, so follow me, folks. Denali started with Rom's uh, Mayor Daly's first budget in 1990, and then ended it with the era, the Rom era. The start of the Rom era was the end of Daly's 20 year reign. Uh, and just think about. By the time Rom took over, it was like, we're broke. We have to do slash of cuts. We have to privatize uh, because um, we can't afford, uh, we cannot afford the government that we have right now. And we gave away all of our re revenue generating assets. We don't have the parking meters anymore. We don't have the Skyway. We don't have all of these things. <laughs> we gave it away. <laughs> we gave it away. Uh, we gave away the revenue generating assets. Um, uh, and and, and each time we did, we said, 
but the private sector knows. They know how to run yeah. this. They give uh, us the money up front. It's great. Just think about that first budget, though. Again, cut property taxes and hire 800 police. 20 years later, those 800 police are contributing to the pension issues that we're facing. I'm all for public pensions. Don't get mad at me, police, when I say this. I'm just pointing out the inconsistencies that the daily administration fed the people of Chicago through the news media of Chicago that we're going to cut government, cut your taxes, and add police to the payroll. And then the private sector made the government think that liquidity is sexy. Like if you want to go back to the SVB thing, it all ties in. And governments are not supposed to be agile and liquid. And this idea that, you know, we were strategically underfunding things, we were taking out of stability. And all of those SVB people were just like, oh, yeah, like, you know, we are just coasting on. I mean, look, I was working in affordable housing in 2007 uh, at a small research nonprofit that was like at like 42 Broadway, so on Wall Street when everything went down. And we saw for months and months before that all these people in like Jamaica, Queens and Staten Island are foreclosing on their homes. And like Michael Lewis wants to tell you the story that just like one brilliant rich white guy saw it. No, we all saw it. I saw it on the ground. <laughs> and, oh yeah. <laughs> but, but the point is that, right, like all of these people who come and want to give advice from that private sector perspective, they like somewhere in their brain, they know that shifting kind of risk and reward, like that's it, right? Like liquidity comes with risk. And they're just like, oh, you're really stupid for being really cautious. And then risk hits because risk is just, you know, intermittently and randomly distributed. And when risk hits, they panic. They act like you were always going to be as safe as you were, even though you've divested. Right? You've taken all your money out of your bank account. You've turned it into $1 bills and you've like rolled around on your bed in it for a TikTok video. And then you don't know why you don't have any money in the bank. And they go to government, which is where you're supposed to go. But they've been, they've been telling like, you know, people like you and me, like, oh, you're dummies. We know how to do this. And it just, it's, it's infuriating. And it's infuriating to see it happen time and time and time again, because there is a partnership there. And these folks are rejecting that partnership, but government is still chasing them. Uh, and uh, they, the, the line is they uh, they believe in privatizing the profits and socializing the losses, uh, and um, the taxpayer picks up the bill. Uh, but that's somehow. And the taxpayer picks up the bill so we can distribute the loss, but we don't distribute the win. That is correct. Distributing the win is really really hard to sell, but distributing the loss, people just think about that as blunting or softening or diluting. Well, distributing the win is the win is uh, at the heart of what the fair tax was. Yes. So the fair tax initiative put forth by Governor Pritzker, a billionaire, was that the wealthy people will pay more, uh, a greater percentage of uh, their income to state taxes. They're wealthy. We're going to distribute some of that wealth. We are, for once, going to socialize the profits. It was defeated. And I hate to say it, 39th Ward, heck of a job. Hey, you no, are. <laughs> no, I looked at the maps for that as we were thinking about how to how to spread our folks around. And, you know, there were places that went for the fair tax. But again, right, this divide. What was the overall ward, percentage in the 39th Ward? I, I'm not going to talk about it. Because uh, <laughs> it, it depends on the underlying composition of the electorate. And so one of the things that I'm really dead set on doing in my community to help my community Yet the things that we really need is make sure that the people whose interests are tied to these things are actually voting. Because the thing that I learned is that there are some people who always vote, right? Always, always, always. 
Um, and then there are some people who need to, I don't say they need to feel the stakes because I like, I don't like talking down to people about these things. Right. Again, when I talk about the nineties, they had that voter die thing that feels a little intense. Um, but it's the idea of like, people need to believe that if they vote, something can change. And you see like these continued moves to sort of like enshrine the existing power structure. This was the thing that I, I was telling you about before. Like my, my little note about this was like, it's, it's austerity frosting on prosperity cake where we have to show that we're very efficient. We're penny pinching. We're doing all these things. We're not throwing, uh, you know, good money after bad, but what we're depending on is keeping a structure where we have wealthy people. We have makers. We want to keep them. We want to appease them. And that's how we show that we're, we're moral. And that's not how a government works. But that's kind of like the vision that, that Vallis is offering us. It's technocratic. It's, um, wait, so, okay. So again, another New York thing. I love Robert Caro. And he wrote a lot about power. And you can talk about policy, but if you don't have a power analysis behind it, and I've heard this said on your show by tons of people, because this is something you like to talk about, you're not seeing... Um, how these things are actually going to be implemented and who they're going to benefit. Yes. Uh, go go into that a little more. Robert Carroll, the great author, wrote The Power Broker, talked about Robert Moses, how he uh, shaped planning in the in the New York City for, I don't know, 60 years, I think, from the 20s uh, into the early 80s, maybe. Uh, and yeah. And so, I mean, I think a lot of it is right. You build a government and who is that government accountable to and how? In the same way that in the 1970s, um, the folks in the New York City government were sitting down with the business leaders because they were afraid of losing Wall Street, Emanuel was very cozy with the business industry. Uh, Lori Lightfoot, very, very cozy with the real estate industry, right? The Get Stuff Done pack, which like I have now wiped from my brain how much money they poured into my race, but <laughs> um, so much money, like they spent so much money in the last month, like more than my entire budget for the entire race. And I was like, I am just a lady in my basement. And I cannot imagine that all these people who worked with Rahm Emanuel are so dead set on not seeing me go to city council. Um, it was just wild. Yeah. They didn't want you to go because there's a chance uh, that you might vote against some kind of economic deal, uh, some kind of subsidy deal that would fortify their ranks. They don't, there would be maybe a chance that you would. Uh, urge that more uh, property tax dollars get spent uh, hiring nurses in the public schools uh, as opposed to giving handouts out to developers. They needed you to be, they couldn't have you in there because you weren't reliable. And so they w went against you and they were willing to spend big time money against you. And by the way, they, I mean, you were up against a popular incumbent who, yes, yeah, she'll do what they want. But the point is, is like they overkilled. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, they really did. I'd like to think I'd like I'd like lots of people to send me thank you notes for drawing some of their money up towards here to make it a little easier on other people. Because like, look, right? You know, I, I'm not sure about just like big picture. The like, we're gonna have a lady who loves to tell like public finance fairy tales, uh, like sitting in her basement wearing a novelty baseball T-shirt and drinking a beer, like to Ben Jarowski. Like that's not what we're looking for in city council right now. It should be takes all kinds but i just i mean wait what's the I novel that it is, you're wearing yeah oh, it's a shohei otani shirt <laughs> oh <laughs> uh you can't see that ladies and gentlemen we're uh 
uh, audio only, unfortunately. Um, we're audio only, so you didn't see me stand up and just my my chest fill your entire screen. Um, yes. But I was going to say the, the to, to take it to Vallis though, right? Efficiency is his central point. And again, he is running to be the mayor of a big city. He's running to be a public sector guy on efficiency, which is not the purpose of the public sector. And here are three things that he has said, because I went to his website. Um, he wants to streamline bureaucracy. And for me, as a public administration scholar, I hear that as he wants to reduce administrative capacity, and administrative capacity is already cut really thin, and that's our ability as government to do things. I say us, because I'm always, I'm always in the public sector regardless of what I do. He wants to renegotiate contracts. That's code for privatization. Right. And that's also code for like, we're going to do a little bit of a card trick to show you that we're fiscally responsible. It's signaling. And the last thing is, he said, we're going to consolidate services. And this is, again, sort of draining this idea of slack and resilience and high quality, accessible, equitable services. We're going to consolidate services. There's like not even that many people over there. Right. What do they need? And you start to see how this story that was set in motion so many years ago, when he became budget director in what, 93, 90-something? In the early 90s. Yeah, in the early 90s. And people love this stuff still. They're still eating it up. Well, I'll tell you something else he did, uh, ladies and gentlemen. We don't have time to uh, take the deep dive. We'll do it another time. Uh, That was when the daily administration, and here's the ultimate scam, they invented the TIF program as it's deployed in the city of Chicago. And what they figured out uh, is if you make any TIF district larger than the specific project it was created for to create a fund, you will have uh, a 23-year source of slush money. That if there if that money is not dedicated to a specific project, it will just go from the taxpayers into bank accounts, which the city, the mayor, will be free to spend. Tip revenue bonds. Well, this, just, this is also on his economic plan. We we can't get into tips right now, but tip we revenue talk about bonds. This. So he, you can't have it two ways, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> you can't say you're being efficient with government when you set up a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar slush fund. And we'll go back to 1990 Chicago Tribune. You can't say you're cutting taxes and hiring freeze, having a hiring freeze when you're hiring 800 more police officers. You're essentially telling the people of Chicago, you're so stupid. We can tell you con- contradicting things in one opening paragraph and you will believe it. Because people don't want to know how it works. People want to believe that public finance is orderly. They want to believe that it's inputs and outputs. They don't want to believe there's a power analysis to it. And they don't want to, they just like the headlines. They're waiting for this to be boring, but it's actually like super fun and exciting. Yeah. Um, all right, we have uh, run out of time. We could go on for another hour. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not tired and neither is she, uh, but I think we'll hold back. Uh, I'm going to invite you again and again, Denali. You can run, but you can't hide from the Ben Jarofsky <laughs> show. Uh, and the next time you're on... I'm not running for anything anytime. <laughs> running for or running from? Oh, no, Ben's calling me again. Um, <laughs> I love it, Ben. I want to come and talk about, like, well, you know, let's, we'll, you know, we'll let's, write, a, let's, let's write a musical about public finance. Yes, we'll write a musical. We'll, and let's, you know, next time we're on, 
uh, we'll be out of the, the crucible of this uh, election and we'll have to maybe have a little more room to maneuver and talk about things in historical terms. Let's talk about Rudy G's reign in the 90s. Oh, that's right. We were supposed yeah. to talk we were about supposed to, but that's I, okay. I can confess that I was from New York. I could yes. talk to you about Trump and Rudy in the 90s. Yes. So what I said to well, you was that like, I remember the 90s when Paris Hilton, Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump were just New York problems. Wow. <laughs> instead of instead of tracing the daily budget from 1990 to 2011, we'll just take the trajectories of those three people and talk about like the moral decline of American society. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, it'll be fantastic. And that if that's not <laughs> a tease for the millions of Chicagoans out there to check us out, uh, I know nothing will be. Thank you. By the way, that is the most homework anyone has ever done for preparation of an interview. She went back and took a look at the 1990 budget. I mean, I was astounded. Which I did not. Like, so just so you know, I did not asked Denali to do that. She did that on her own. Uh, and wow, that was, I'm really glad you did because it opened up a lot of memories and just disinformation as it's practiced in Chicago. And we went on a budget time. acid trip. <laughs> you and me, Ben. Oh, wow. We get a, like a bus ride thing. You just get in the bus, <laughs> take acid, and then uh, read old Tribune articles about the date uh, all right, Denali, thank you very much uh, for being on my show. I appreciate it. All right. This was the best. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. That's Denali. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. 